Welcome to the Expedition Success Podcast, where we hope to elevate your mind through discussion with successful innovators, entrepreneurs, athletes, professionals, and creators on their journeys towards success. I'm your host, Liam Kaufman. And I'm your co-host, Michael Sitziawa. Today, we're joined by Blake Faulkner. Blake is a student at Miami University Farmer School of Business, pursuing a Bachelor of Science in Business, Finance, and Entrepreneurship. Blake has tons of experience within the venture capital realm and is also the founder of a metaverse marketplace startup called Blocksmith. Blake has lots to share and we couldn't be more pumped to have him on. So without further ado, welcome Blake to the podcast. We're glad to have you on. Super happy to be here and excited to dive in. Yeah. So uh, before we get into actually talking about all your experiences within like venture capital, the company you're working on, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? Yeah, totally. So born and raised Southwest Ohio. Um, it's kind of funny. I grew up 20 minutes from where I go to college now at Miami. Never actually assumed I would end up going to Miami, but that's the way that things worked out. So kind of like that interesting story of uh, kind of always in that that home setting, always in that uh, in Southwest Ohio growing up, went to uh, high school, Bishop Fenwick High School. Big shout out to them, uh, repping the program a little bit. Uh, and uh, yeah, so when it comes to like entrepreneurship, always been a lemonade stand kid. So like, that's kind of my first interaction with entrepreneurship, right? Selling cookies and lemonade to people um, at street corners. And, and from there, uh, ended up joining the Roblox platform, which I'm sure we'll dive into. Yeah. So you mentioned like being the lemonade stand kid, like, was that something that was always there and you kind of just naturally were like, I want to be an entrepreneur when I get older, or was it something that you picked up as you grew older? Yeah. So it's never been a question for me. Like I've always been raised about with the mindset of like, how do you build wealth for yourself? And that's not very easy to do in a corporate setting. So I've never like wanted to work a corporate job. I've never pursued corporate internships. I've always been focused on like VC and entrepreneurship and wanting to build my own company. And like one of the, uh, one of the big uh, questions or like topics that I've kind of heard about lately is how entrepreneurs more and more are like shifting towards like engineering, more technical knowledge versus actually having that um, just like entrepreneurship knowledge. Um, but I know you're pursuing finance, business and entrepreneurship. So did it ever like cross your mind to pursue a more technical degree like engineering um, at all? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I was taking like engineering classes. Um, there was, there was a few of them that were offered in affiliation with my high school at the time. I took them, never really fell in love with engineering and computer science as it is in like academia, but I always loved building games and building, um, different, more like engineering, sciencey tech aspect related activities kind of outside of the traditional mediums of academia. Um, but never really considered pursuing computer science formally in college, never considered engineering in college, um, always been interested in finance and VC. So um, my senior year in, in high school, I really started to learn more about VC, kind of fell into this position and role where I was constantly watching these videos online about VC, how entrepreneurs get back. And that's really where the finance part comes in, um, looking at my degree. So I'm getting a double major in finance and entrepreneurship and a minor in anthropology. Anthropology is kind of like the curveball on the other two, um, but it also presents this really interesting uh, experience where as an entrepreneur, you're always focused on 
what is the human experience with your product and what is the like historical context of how people have interacted with things. And anthropology kind of gives me that extra background to really drive a human focused approach with my with my startup. So, so far, what's been your favorite or your most impactful VC experience? Ooh, that's a really good point. Um, I would say that in terms of like the most impactful, uh, definitely working with student founders has been amazing. So I uh, consider myself to be an associate. I've worked a little bit over two years um, with our, our student-ran funds um, at Miami called Red Hawk Ventures, which is actually like one of the first undergrad VC funds like in the world. And a lot of people don't know that. It was started in the 90s um, with a grant from PNG. Um, and it's, it's just an amazing program. I mean, you get to really dive in and support student-led companies through the process of ideation, helping them find product market fit, helping them meet other students and grow their team. And it's really just a great experience to share in their vision and really help them scale up um, what they're working on. So is Red Hawk just fully focused on student founders then versus just like any founders out there? Yeah, so it's current student and alumni only. Um, so it's it's only for Miami current students and Miami alumni that are starting companies. And I found it interesting that you mentioned anthropology um, and how that's kind of like helping you, because I feel like kind of that comes out of like nowhere. You think like, how does anthropology help with everything? But um, like I'm reading this book right now by Ray Dalio. It's one of his new books. It's about the changing world order. Um, and it's kind of odd because he's all about economics, he's a big investor. But then he mentions how like studying past history, just like how humans have been affected actually has like a big impact and like can start to see like correlations that are actually happening today based on studying that. Um, so like that's definitely super cool that you're doing that. Um, so one thing that I found interesting just talking to you when I met you for the first time um, and even just like glossing over your LinkedIn is that you mentioned that you've been on both sides of the VC table. Um, which is interesting, especially because you're very young. And I feel like most people, when they think of venture capital as an investor, um, they think of more older people who have already like gotten capital on their own um, and started investing. So how did you get on that side of the table? And what are some, what are some of the things you've learned about being an investor actually within the VC world? Yeah, so I, my first real experience with learning about strategy behind VC and strategy behind investing. So not directly investing, but really just where I began my education on it. Um, I started watching Stanford GSB interviews um, my senior year in high school. And I would watch like, I probably watched like 50 hours of these GSB interviews. And they basically, they'll bring in an executive. Normally it's VCs because Stanford's very like VC entrepreneurship focused. So they'll bring in people like Elon Musk, um, Shamath, and they'll talk about like fundraising strategy, what it means to be a VC, like what VCs are looking out for. So over time, I kind of fell into this role where I was looking for more opportunities in VC. And you learn very quickly um, as a young person trying to break into VC that VC is the hard, one of the hardest industries to participate in, right? Because if you think about it, at the end of the day, VC is all about your past experience and your past um, operating history and the value that you can actually provide to startups. So what value does a student actually have to provide to startups that would make those startups want to take your money as, an, as a possible investor? So it kind of put me in this position where I really had to build up as much value add on my end as possible. 
So very quickly started to learn more about programs like Y Combinator, started to watch like all the YouTube videos they have uh, available and just really grow my own knowledge base. And then from there, I joined Red Hawk Ventures um, my freshman year. It was really one of the clubs that I was looking at um, when I actually applied to Miami. So that was like one of the big reasons that I actually ended up going to Miami is because of the student uh, VC fund. So joined that and then from there really started to get experience and what the process looked like. So in VC, it's called due diligence. So you'll do due diligence on a startup. It's the whole investment process. So all of your research, um, meeting with the founders and really diving into, is there an opportunity here? Um, that education and that experience kind of allowed me to get more into VC and really kind of understand the stuff that's honestly fairly gatekeep. Like in the VC community, knowledge around like what they're looking for, a lot of that can be gatekeeped at times. So what happens is, is when you have experience investing at my age in student-led startups, a lot of that translates to startups that are led by older people, startups that are led by alumni. So kind of went from there, started to do scouting programs. Um, that helped out a ton with meeting literally hundreds of founders, hundreds of investors um, through programs like Gen Z Scouts, um, which is Jonathan Chang's program, a fantastic investor and individual. Um, but yeah, so that kind of just led me into this position where I was actually able to interact with startups and scout them out to possible investors. And that was a totally professional experience at the end of the day, right? Like they're looking at me solely as somebody that can actually bring value to them, put money on the table and get them funding for their startups. So from there, it's, it's very easy to build a narrative that, you know, you're working in the position where you're able to engage with these startups. You have a ton of knowledge. You've worked with 100 plus startups. Now VCs are interested in you and the value that you can provide. And when you pair that with um, kind of like my experience as a game developer on Roblox, which would have been completely random up until two years ago when Roblox IPO'd um, or a year ago around that range, when people started to really look at the metaverse more, look at companies like Gather Presence, um, Decentraland, some of these emerging metaverse platforms, the focus has really allowed me to not only provide value with my experience on the investing side, but also be able to provide value with my experience with metaverses and being a Roblox game developer for 10 years. So really able to tie that in well to kind of build this package um, deal for myself of, yeah, I have experience investing. Yeah, I have experience. You know, I would even consider myself to be an expert in the metaverse. I've been in it for a decade. So able to bring that value to the table and kind of really bundle it and provide value to VCs and investors. And they've appreciated that and offered me tons of tons of really exciting roles that I've been excited to participate in. Yeah, that's definitely cool. I mean, like we, we definitely want to talk more about the metaverse a bit later on. But uh, right now I want to know, like, do you think that scouting in VCs is something that anybody can get into? Or do you think like it's only like, kind of, it's kind of exclusive to people, I guess, with money? Yeah, so when it comes to scouting, um, scouting basically is where normally there's students, but there's a more professional level of scouting. Um, most of the scouting that I'm involved in is student-based. So the way scouting functions is VCs right now have a very hard time getting deal flow. Um, and a lot of them really won't tell you that, but there's so much money available in the VC market right now. Uh, there's so much money that's able to be allocated that a lot of VCs are having a hard time getting into very competitive deals and being very early on them. So what they're doing is they're looking for students like me that are connected at our universities, connected in Gen Z communities online and connected with founders to put those deals in front of them before they even consider raising money. Um, and the way that that functions is like, there's normally like a compensation structure. So like if I bring in a really great deal, 
um, I'll get a percentage of like the carry when that deal exits and you know, 10 years or whatever. But really fundamentally, it's just a great experience to get yourself out there and to meet tons of founders that are building really cool stuff and build your own personal network. In terms of like, how do you get scouting rules? That's a really interesting question because in general, even just getting internships, like if you go online and type in VC internship, you might find like 10 or 15 of them at max. And those are gonna be hosted on job boards that are really only available to certain communities. So like even getting a scouting or VC internship role is, is incredibly difficult and you have to know right where to look. So you have to go to like the accelerated job boards, you have to go to the Gen Z VCs job board, you have to go to uh, confluence.vcs uh, job board. So there's all these like kind of gated in a way. I mean, they're open to the public, but if you don't know about them, it's really hard to ever get a role in VC. And that's where all of, all of the scouting positions, all the internships are. So once you kind of start to get more involved in the community, you kind of build up all these other resources that allow you to really continue to participate in the uh, community. But getting into it for the, for the first time is, is really difficult, but yeah. So then one thing I could see students doing or even after just like hearing this podcast is like, oh, if it's so tough to break into the venture capital world, like why not start my own fund at like my school or my college? And I know you've mentioned there's only like, what, like nine or 11, like, funds throughout the country yeah. um yeah. so like would you have any like advice or tips if a student was to say i want to start my own fund like even here at purdue i don't think there is one like i looked it up um there might have been one in the past but i don't think so right now so it's like if i wanted to start a venture capital um fund here at purdue or a club like how what are the best ways that i could go about doing that yeah, so there's two different avenues that you can consider doing it with. Um, one, you could actually raise your own VC fund, like completely independent from your university. That's a fairly more complicated process, but there are people that have done it. Um, if you look at uh, like Atlan Ventures, which is like out west, I believe, they're in a position where they've built a fund that's separate in some ways from their university and acts almost completely independent and has real limited partners. So the way that VC works for anyone that's like not familiar, um, a general partner, which is the like managing director of that VC firm will go out to investors and raise money and then invest that money in startups. So it's kind of a, it's a three-way process. Like you have your LPs, which are your high net worth individuals, your institutions like Purdue or Miami. Um, who have massive like endowments or they're looking to get greater access to startups. Those are the LPs. They invest the money in the GPs, which are the Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, VC funds, who then invested in startups. So when you're looking at like how you're actually going to be able to create a student-ran VC fund, um, like I mentioned, you really have two options. One, you can try to raise one that's more like independent, but still affiliated with the school, where students at that school are going to make up a majority of the members. Um, and then you can have real LPs. But if you do it as the way that Miami is, normally what you do is an evergreen fund. And the way that that functions is that your LPs are normally donors and they don't get any of the money back after they've already donated, right? So like Miami, um, our student rent fund is from a grant from PNG. So PNG wanted to uh, stimulate innovation in, in, at Miami in the 90s. They donated $500,000, right? And then students at the time were like, okay, awesome. Like, why don't we use this to back innovative student-like companies on campus? Okay, cool. Now you're in a position to build a fund. 
but you, it has to be evergreen. So there's no profits that are going back to PNG and any like earnings that are that are made through exits of, of deals, that money actually will just roll back into the fund. So it's kind of, it creates this like experience that a lot of students can do over the years and never really lose out on too much money, but then you still have to continue to raise more and more funds as you go along. Um, but yeah, so those are really the two avenues for doing it. If you're considering doing a student fund, like one, reach out to me, I'd love to help. Um, two, like talk to your administration um, at the school. They're the people that are gonna lead you in the right direction. Um, you're gonna need their support at the end of the day. So go to the administration at your school, go to the dean at your business school and say, hey, there's really cool startups at, we'll just say Purdue. I know these founders, they're really cool. They're doing really amazing stuff. They have some proprietary technology, but we don't have any way to financially back them. So why don't we create a student-led fund like these schools, like Miami, like Harvard, like Yale, like all these other schools that have undergrad funds. Why don't we do this at our school? And these are the benefits of it. And these benefits are already being seen at these other universities. So you kind of, you're gonna to have to sell it to your university a little bit, but at the end of the day, like it's, I mean, it's an invaluable experience and it's almost an expectation nowadays that you have that experience if you ever wanna do VC. Um, it's, it's almost like being in the investment banking club at your school before trying to get a job in investment banking. So it's almost become a criteria now that you've engaged in some sort of student-led fund before diving into VC. So then like, I know here at Purdue, although we don't have venture capital fund, we do have like almost like a Y Combinator in a way where students who have like good ideas can go and they'll help you out with your idea. And then even at some points, they will give you money if your idea is like that solid. Um, but like what kind of separates an actual venture capital fund from like something like that where they're trying to help you out, start up your company? Yeah, so we would consider those to be accelerators. And the difference is that with an accelerator, um, Miami has one too. It's called the Red Hawk Launch Accelerator. Um, I actually did it last year and I'm doing it again this next semester, which I'm really excited about. Um, there's two different kinds of accelerators, um, non-dilutive and dilutive. So a dilutive accelerator is going to give you a certain amount of money when you join and they're gonna take a certain percent of your company. A non-dilutive accelerator is more of a grant structure. So they're gonna give you like $1,000 for your business they're going to take no equity. They're going to have no expectations of you, except for that you perform in the accelerator. Um, that's how Miami's is. It's a, it's a non-dilutive accelerator. Um, do you know if Purdue's is, is dilutive or non-dilutive? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. It was something I actually was thinking about joining and like trying to be a part of like next year. Um, but I know it has like a bunch of different stages. Um, you kind of just work your way up. Um, and they'll, they'll literally help you out if you literally just have an idea um, and you take it from there. But I'm, I'm not sure if it's diluted or not. <laughs> gotcha. Well, something that's really interesting is when you're looking at actually like what, how is an accelerator formatted compared to a VC? So an accelerator is actually an, uh, a dilutive accelerator, right? It's like a Y Combinator, maybe not Miami's Red Hawk Launch Accelerator, maybe not Purdue's. Um, but looking at something like Y Combinator, that's actually an investment vehicle. And I think a lot of people might not realize that, but L, like Y Combinator has LPs, right? Like they have investors in Y Combinator and that's where the money comes from that they give companies, right? So it's interesting because some accelerators, they're a great way if you're an LP to kind of get in at the ground floor. But when you're looking at how do certain, how do a majority of accelerators perform like when it comes to returns compared to VC funds, they, the returns are normally a little bit less, unless you're like Y Combinator or 500 startups. I think they're 500 global now. 
um, their returns are a little bit different, but it's still the same sort of structure. And there's still other stuff to consider too. Like if you're considering doing an accelerator or raising from investors, um, it's important to understand that with the accelerator, like really know what you're getting into when you do it, especially if it's a dilutive accelerator where you have to give up equity. Um, one of the biggest things that you hear from founders is they'll do an accelerator and then they'll come out of it and they'll be like, I didn't learn anything. Like This actually didn't help me. And I just gave away a percentage of my company that was probably pretty high uh, for a certain amount of money that's probably not a, a fantastic deal, right? Like I think Y Combinator, well, Y Combinator has a new deal. So th there's like a typical Y Combinator deal. Um, it's like 125,000 for 7%. That was the old deal. Now they've, they've changed a little bit, but if you think about it, like nowadays getting $125,000 for 7% of your company, that's like not a lot of money anymore. And that's actually a pretty low valuation in the current market. So it's interesting when you look at how an accelerator can affect your business, you really have to know what you're getting into when you do a, a dilutive accelerator and you really have to make sure that you understand the purpose of an accelerator and that's to get you to the starting line. Um, they're not going to fund you normally past uh, that program, right? So the way the VC functions is like, if I give you, Michael, $100,000 and then you do really well, like your company is booming, I will come into your next round of fundraising and continue to give you money because I want to keep my ownership percentage in the company at a certain level so that my, I have the greatest returns. Very, very simple economics. But with an accelerator, they normally don't do follow-on funding. So now you're in a position where, you know, you gave away a certain amount of your company at, to an investor that might not participate in, in your additional fundraising rounds later on, which are almost inevitable. So now you're in a position where it's like, okay, do I want to, do I want a real like VC investor that's going to give me more money in the future if I'm doing well, or is this accelerator really worthwhile? Um, with Y Combinator, everybody says it's worthwhile. It's very rare you find anybody that says Y Combinator wasn't worth the, the equity. Um, but yeah, so there, there are a lot of important things to consider before you actually like do an accelerator or even start a company in general. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, especially for students um, in general, because now I think about it, like Purdue's, I think like you can go there and it, it will be dilutive after a certain point. Like if your idea is that good and there definitely will be investors. But I think for like younger people, especially um, if they have like investors that start coming up to them out of nowhere, especially if you just have an idea, it can be a little bit intimidating. And when you start having that pressure, you can begin to make poor decisions that really can kill yeah. you in the long run, especially if you're giving away, like you said, with Y Combinator, like um, 7% of your company for 125,000 for like someone our age, it's like 125,000. That's like a lot, a lot of money, but you got to have more yeah. confidence in your idea's ability to produce in the future. And if you have an idea like Facebook or some crazy thing, like even your idea of the game development in the metaverse, like the valuations can start to get really high, if you really get down to it, the nitty gritty. And when you're giving away that much of your company for 120,000 that early on, it can be killer. So definitely like really good advice there. And there are, this is something that I, I didn't really understand when I first kind of started putting myself out there and putting my company out there, I kind of assumed that everybody that I talked to kind of, and this is super naive, but like had my best intentions in mind, especially when you looked at people that were actually like working at the university or university affiliate, right? Um, there are some very predatory programs that actually go after student-led founders. 
So like, be really careful when somebody talks about venture studios. Be very careful when somebody talks about um, giving you $100,000 for 15% of your company or 20% of your company. Like those are actually very bad deals. Um, but a lot of student founders, like it's, it's amazing to get any sort of a deal and raise any kind of money. But fundamentally, it's important to have the mindset that you're raising money to reach certain milestones. And those milestones are what's the accomplishment at the end of the day, not raising money. Um, raising money is a vehicle for your success, right? It isn't your success. Um, and you see a lot of founders, they kind of get in that mindset of, oh my God, I've raised a million dollars. That's amazing. Congratulate me, blah, blah, blah. But really like at the end of the day, you should be uh, excited about being able to provide like healthcare for your employees. Like there's different stuff that is, is you kind of mature into realizing as a student founder is the ultimate achievement. Um, and it's normally not raising money. And it's also important too, like when you have a student-led company and it's really good and you actually have like a solid business model, don't ever chase money. Like if you think that you need money, don't chase money. Like wait a little bit, do some pitch competitions and money will chase you. That's kind of what I fell into. Like in the beginning, I was in this position where I kind of got into that mindset that a lot of student founders get into when they first start pitching their company. Like, oh my God, I want to raise money. I want to reach X milestone in X amount of months. Um, but you kind of start chasing the money a little bit. And that's how you get really bad deals on, on your equity. And that's how you get put in, put in the corners as a, as a student founder. So let the money chase you. I promise that it will. Just do some pitch competitions, win some stuff. And the deal is just only going to get better for you um, the longer that you wait and the longer that you continue to bootstrap and build your own stuff. Yeah, it's one of the things we really push um, on this podcast is like developing that why versus actually chasing like a set goal. It's like have a meaning towards your goal. Because um, if you stick to that meaning, then things like money aren't really the end and you'll get a lot farther. So that's some very good advice right there. A lot of VCs will narrow down into specific sectors or emerging technology. Have you narrowed down your interests to any particular sectors or into any certain technologies? Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, there are definitely industries and business models that are more interesting to me than others. Um, some of that is actually just, I don't have a good excuse for it. Like, I'm frankly not interested in a majority of healthcare. It's just not my, it's not my interest, right? I'm a very consumer focused person. I prefer consumer companies. So companies that are building technology, software that's actually going to be used by millions of people, right? That's my, that's my, what I enjoy. Um, I like the ideas of like a Facebook and Instagram, that kind of technology, like software as a service for um, customers and actually creating like new experiences and, and building what I, what there's a really great term that I saw a VC talking about um, culture tech, right? That's, it's not super common to use it, but culture tech is like technology that fundamentally changes culture. Um, that's what I'm really interested in personally, um, both as an investor and as somebody that, um, just has had a lot of time working with different founders. I found that it's, it's hard for me to really dive in on, on like healthcare companies and uh, companies that really just don't interest me personally, like uh, industries and technologies that I'm just like not fundamentally interested in. Um, one of the reasons though, like you were talking about like why VCs do that. Um, VCs do that because it's easier to raise money at the end of the day. Like having a very well-defined thesis and having examples of you succeeding um, in investments in that thesis 
uh, it just makes it it makes it way easier to actually raise money. Um, and you'll see it's it's there's two different arguments here. It's the generalist versus um, like a more narrow like thesis based approach. Um, generalists are VCs that invest in everything, right? Like if you bring them a really cool health healthcare technology company, they might invest. If you bring them, you know, the next Facebook like social media company, they might invest. Um, and that's different than the VCs that are very industry focused and very like specific. Um, and the returns vary greatly too. So it's just interesting. Like there's there's so many different structures existing in VC for VC firms. Um, so if anyone's like really interested in learning more about that, like would definitely dive into the differences between a like industry agnostic generalist VC and uh, a VC that's very focused with like a, a thematic approach. Cool. So um, before we actually go into like your history with game development, your company you're doing now, uh, I just wanted to like wrap up this little section on venture capital. Um, it's been cool hearing all about it. Um, like if you were to give one piece of advice to students or anyone who's interested in venture capital, like what would that be? Yeah. So if you're interested in like VC and learning more about VC, I would go and watch, and this is going to, it's a little bit of exaggeration, but I think that you should do it if you have the time. Go into Y Combinator's YouTube channel, watch every video on there, and you'll be like way ahead of probably most of your professors, honestly, when it comes to startups um, and, and raising money and, and building a team and actually finding product market fit. Um, from there, it puts you in a really great position where, okay, cool, now you have the base knowledge, now you can actually talk to people. So how do you actually like start talking to VCs? How do you actually become a member of the community? Uh, join the Gen Z VC Slack. It's owned by Megan Loyce. Um, literally just go to Google, type in Gen Z VCs. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing community of roughly 10,000 young people that are VCs, right? So there are like really great examples of VCs that um, have made it and they're like 24, 25 and they are professional investors at the best firms in the nation. And you kind of get to see their story, connect with them, connect with other people that are aspiring to get into that position. Um, and Gen Z VCs is a great community to do that. Um, they also have a great hiring board where they post um, tons and tons and tons of different opportunities in VC as well. Awesome, that's some awesome advice because I feel like a lot of advice that people will give with venture capital is like go reach out to people on LinkedIn, do these things. But um, watching some YouTube videos, joining Slack, um, Discord, like all that sounds like something that our generation would do and you can get a lot out of, especially with meeting people. So, yeah. Cool. And also, if you're a student and you're trying to get into VC, like I'd say the prerequisite is that you're in entrepreneurial clubs on campus. If you have a student ran VC fund, go try to join it. If you have some sort of a like creativity club on campus in the entrepreneurship department, go try to join it. You need to interface as much as possible with your entrepreneurship department um, because it'll it'll create really great opportunities for you um, and and meaningful experiences that'll help you at the end of the day and like actually learning more about VC and getting better integrated into that uh, community. So now, like going into your history of game development, I know when we first talked and we actually first met, um, you mentioned that it's something you've been doing for a while now. Um, you've always kind of been passionate about. So like, how did you first get into game development? Yeah, so I joined the Roblox platform in 2012. Um, my friends were playing it. They were like, hey, Blake, we're, we're moving from Lego universe to Roblox. And I was like, all right, I'm in, we're doing this. Uh, I was a huge Lego universe fan back in the day. Shout out Lego universe um, as a platform. 
lot of great memories on there. Uh, unfortunately, closed a while back. But a lot of people actually went from Lego Universe to Roblox. So like when people compare how Roblox characters look to Legos, um, that's like not that crazy. <laughs> it actually helped Roblox a lot early on um, because millions of people went from Lego Universe to Roblox. So that's like a really cool thing that isn't talked about a whole lot. Um, but I joined Roblox in 2012. At the time, there was like roughly 5 million games on the platform, 7 million monthly users. Now Roblox has over 200 million monthly users and over 50 million games. So like that growth has been insane. Um, but I joined originally as a player, very quickly found myself meeting tons of people on the platform that I thought were just amazing. Like I joined some of these communities and I was like, oh my God, you're my age and you're building games. You're running communities of thousands of people and you're like, 13, 14, that's so crazy um, to me. And I just really wanted to be a part of that community and kind of get to those groups of people and start to learn. Uh, so very quickly went from being a player to diving into actually building my own communities, building my own games, um, kind of started my own like informal studio called 1MP Studios. 1MP stands for 1 million plays. It's kind of my goal at the time um, to reach a million plays on my games. Um, ended up working on over a hundred games uh, was, involved in tons of different communities and genres on the platform, uh, created fan communities of over 17,000 players, uh, built games for like the Halo genre, Star Wars. Um, there's a few other ones too, medieval stuff. So like all over the place, I was building games and building communities. Um, and over time, just it was such a great experience. And it really led me to entrepreneurship in a lot of ways, because when I started building games, when I was like 13, 14, 15, I never really realized that I was creating small businesses while doing that. So I was in a position where I was just building something uh, strictly and completely <clears throat> out of passion. So I was in a position where, okay, cool. I just built this really awesome Star Wars game. I did it completely for fun. And now people are playing it, but like, I need to run ads for it. So how do I create a marketing strategy for this? How do I like create a moderation team around this game, which are like employees of a small business? So over time, like quickly started to realize that, oh, I need to actually develop some business acumen to keep doing this. Um, so that kind of was really my first more professional end of entrepreneurship. Um, started building those games, started building communities around them. Um, I had people that have worked on those games with me for like six years or so now, um, which is like awesome to have organic social relationships with people online that have worked for you for six years and building something that you both care about. Um, but yeah, so Roblox is like inherently an organic social platform. Um, I think it's one of the best places for creativity and imagination. Um, you can build anything on Roblox completely for free, which is something that doesn't exist right now in other metaverses like Decentraland, Mutate. Um, well, Mutate, yes, but like Decentraland, Upland, some of these other finite land paid platforms, kind of a different setup in some ways, but with Roblox, like everything's free. If you have an amazing idea, you can build it. Um, and it's just such a great platform for young people that are trying to become game developers. And it also led me to start Blocksmith, um, which used to be known as Saberhagen Supplies. So at the time, uh, around 2015 to 2017, I quickly realized how difficult it was to actually make money as a Roblox game developer. So as a Roblox game developer, you only earn 25%, roughly, of your earnings from your game. Um, that's compared to Steam, Epic, and Microsoft stores, which all have games, um, where those creators and publishers of those games actually earn 70%. So like there's a big gap, right, between that 25% developers on Roblox earn versus the 70 to 78% earned uh, for game developers on Steam. 
So there's this interesting scenario that happens of like how do Roblox game developers fill that like roughly 50% gap uh, in earnings, like in the middle. And buying and selling 3D models is the way that people do that. So I started buying and selling 3D models. Um, the way that that kind of functions with Roblox is anything that you build on Roblox, you 100% own. So you have game developers on Roblox that have built thousands and thousands of 3D models. We estimate there's over 100 million 3D models on Roblox. Um, but yeah, so these developers, they create thousands of 3D models and those 3D models are actually worth like a lot of money at the end of the day. Um, and it's a really interesting position where they actually like sell those to each other in Discord channels because there's no marketplace that's ever been created and Roblox has never made one. So it's this interesting position where that 50% uh, earnings is like made up of people selling in these quote for how much they built or selling these trees that they made in, in Roblox Studio um, to each other in like peer-to-peer -peer marketplace channels on Discord. And that's really where Blocksmith was born out of. Um, I got overwhelmed with selling on there. I got really tired of like the scamming that was happening over like PayPal friends and family transactions on Discord um, and decided that I was going to build a marketplace that really solved that problem. So it says that Blocksmith is a Web3 and Metaverse site. Can you explain what Web3 is? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think it's best examined through kind of like, and this is entirely my opinion. I feel like everyone has their own opinion about what Web3 actually is. Uh, my opinion is that it's an evolution of Web 2. So looking at like what is Web 2, right? Web 2 is very static websites, no social or organic social interaction. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, there's a lack of like organic social interaction. Um, the advertising is very like in your face. Everything's focused around player data. And it's just very, very static in some ways. It's not very dynamic. With Web 3, um, I view the metaverse as like the most important thing that's going to happen in Web3. There's other people that are more focused on like cryptocurrency, decentralization, blockchain, and that end of stuff. For me, I think that virtual 3D worlds are a great example of what Web3 is going to be. Um, so the way I kind of like to imagine like where the world is going to change in ways when you look at Web3 is like, hey, you won't go to the mall anymore to buy clothing. Right, like you won't go to your your local outlet mall to get your your North Face jackets. You'll load up some three D uh, platform like Roblox or Mutate or one of these other platforms and go to a virtual shopping mall. And they will know the exact size of clothing that you wear based off your body metrics because you're wearing a half thick suit. Um, and you're you'll have a fully immersive organic social experience with VR goggles. Right, like that's what Web three looks like compared to the world as it as it interfaced with Web two. Um, so really, at the end of the day, Web3 is going to be all about organic social interaction, and it's going to facilitate it in a way that Web2 hasn't in the past. So if I post something on, on Instagram, right, it might come up in your feed, you might like it, you might leave a reply or a comment or something like that, right? That isn't very organic. It's not like if you run into your friend at like a lo local grocery store, right? Or you run into your friend in the hallways at, in school. It's not organic like that. With Roblox, like there's actual organic social interaction happening in these virtual 3D worlds. Like a week ago, I ran into a friend that I haven't talked to in seven years on Roblox. Like that actually is entirely organic. Um, so it's just crazy like how some of this stuff is, is going to just completely impact the way that people 
build relationships. And I think that that's a really big part of the metaverse. And um, I think the metaverse is probably the most important aspect of Web3. Um, but when it comes to like other people's opinions of Web3 and how like crypto, NFT, blockchain, um, I would argue that there are some really cool projects in that space that actually provide utility and value to consumers. But you also have to look at like who's trying to brand Web3. Because, you know, if you look at different people's um, ideology of like what Web3 actually means, like mine is very different. That's like one of the things like when I talk to VCs, they're like, oh, so like for you, uh, Web3 is the metaverse, not like crypto, blockchain, decentralization. For some people that are really pushing the narrative of NFTs, blockchain, crypto, decentralization being the core aspect of Web3, honestly, a lot of those people have very financial like ties with that narrative like the vcs that are saying hey web3 is this this vcs have a portfolio full of crypto companies from web2 so of course it's in their it's in their interest to, to frame web3 as being blockchain decentralization me personally like i mentioned i think it's totally 100 metaverse um i think the metaverse is going to change the way that we actually build relationships with other people and the way that we organically like socially interact with each other so that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is when you got this idea of Blacksmith, you noticed this opportunity and you took it. Why did you decide to do it in Web3? Because like when I think about even what you just said, like if we wanted to go shopping and we do it just all online, we're in this like 3D world. Like I just cannot picture like especially like my parents, the older generation, like doing that and just seeing that happen happening in like the near future. So like, what is your kind of outlook? Do you think it's something that um, could happen like soon in the next couple of years where the metaverse actually starts like being a real thing? Or do you think it's something that's farther out? And why did you decide to kind of pursue your company in, in Web3 versus just Web2? Yeah, so it's really interesting when, so I'll talk a little bit about like how we became, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of like a statement on like Web3. So when I talk about Blocksmith and I'm talking to people that are a little bit more in tune with kind of some of the greater things that are happening in entrepreneurship right now and some of the greater segments like Web3, like the creator economy, like the metaverse, um, I like to say that Blocksmith fundamentally um, at, its, at its very core, at its simplest, is a metaverse marketplace operated in Web3, providing a space and a marketplace for creators that want to participate in the creator economy, right? And that might seem like a bunch of buzzwords, but we actually drive core value in all of those segments. Um, but when you look at like what you're talking about with kind of the older generations, how do they interface with Web3? It's kind of interesting, like how well does your grandpa know how to use Instagram, right? Like he probably has no clue at all. So it's like, do you need the older generation actually like to be in Web3 at the end of the day? That's like an interesting thing to actually think about, right? Like they they aren't on Instagram and Instagram's doing fine, right? And like Roblox, it's it's this interesting thing of like, is the metaverse gonna be a thing in five years? It's like, it's a thing now. It has been since 2004 or 2006 when Roblox got started, right? Like there's 200 million monthly players on Roblox. That is insane, right? 200 million monthly uh, players on Roblox that are spending more time on Roblox than they are spending on YouTube, Twitch, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram combined by a multiple, um, which is an insane amount of hours that are spent already within the metaverse and within the platform. 
Um, so it's interesting, like the view of is Web3 going to be a thing in five years? Like it's a thing now. Um, it's just a thing within a, a specific segment of the population. Um, are there going to be applications where, you know, Gen X is going to get more involved in the metaverse? I think that's kind of inevitable. You're already seeing that in some ways too. Um, a, a great example is with Gather. So Gather.town um, is this like metaverse Web3 startup um, where the, there's like virtual spaces. So you're seeing some corporations use that for like remote work options or having cool like conferences online in those spaces. So you actually are seeing some form of adoption by older generations, like over the age of 30 um, in Web3, which is like exciting as because that kind of adoption so early on in Web3's journey is actually a really great identifier that older generations are going to become natives in Web3 uh, kind of sooner than expected. Um, I mean, look at how long it's taken for, uh, you know, Gen X and, you know, older generations to adopt like Facebook and adopt Instagram. Like it's taken years and years and years. Um, so it's interesting, like, you know, Web3 really just becoming something that in the past five years, how quickly and how energized corporations and um, Gen X really has been in diving into Web3, actually adopting services in that platform. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Like, are people going to be left behind? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's a problem too, right? Like, how do we integrate older generations more meaningfully on platforms like Roblox? How do we actually attract them to even a platform like Roblox in the first place, right? Um, so it's an interesting scenario. I, I think like you're going to end up with the same sort of thing that exists now, where like you can go to your local library and take a class on how to use Instagram right like that kind of old movie trope where you know you have adults that are trying to learn how to you know use current technologies um i think that that's going to be the same thing that happens in web3 so in terms of like who's going to get left behind i do think there is a pretty large population that one they're probably not going to have the technology to engage in web3 like they might not have oculus they might not have this uh you know ar vr technology that's going to be essential to engage in some of these virtual 3d worlds so yeah, it'll be really interesting. I hope too many people don't get left behind. And I, I really hope that the government, honestly, and uh, private corporations work together on creating programs for the older generation to engage more meaningfully in Web3. So how can people not get left, how can people not get stuck behind and get lost in the dust, like with all the new emerging technologies like Web3 and the metaverse? Yeah, so there's the issue of like getting left behind, but there's also the issue of joining into projects that just fundamentally are dangerous too. Like, I mean, watching how much rugging is happening happening in the in the crypto space and with NFT projects, right? So if you show, you know, Board Ape Yacht Club to my my grandfather and say, "Hey, this is a great investment. You should buy it," or or another NFT project, um, and they end up getting scammed, like they're not going to want to be in Web three. So it's like, how do you create a, an environment that's actually safe for older people to engage in this space? That's a big thing too. Um, but yeah, a lot of like the, the boundaries for Web3 are still being defined in some ways. And there's no regulation for Web3 right now. Like if anyone tells you that there's regulation for Web3, they are tripping. Like <laughs> there's no regulation for Web3. You can do whatever you want on Roblox. You can literally do anything on Roblox. Um, so it, it's interesting, like how do you even create a safe, a safe environment on platforms in Web3. Um, it'll be interesting to see 
how that pans out and how companies like Roblox and, and Gather um, and like Decentraland actually create safe experiences for users, which I know is a big focus for them. Um, but that'll be a big part of it too. And like, how do you not get left behind? It's interesting because I'll talk to students that are completely left behind, right? Like not even people that are, you know, in their 50s and 60s that are just trying to figure out the technology, but I'll meet with students that don't understand Web3 at all. And it's like with students getting left behind, that's a huge problem because we need students to build Web3. We need students to build the technologies and companies that are going to be essential in Web3. Um, so if you're a student and you're trying to learn more about Web3 and you're trying to learn more about the metaverse, um, in terms of metaverse, I would go check out Megan Loist's Metaverse 101. It's called The Metaverse uh, 101. Um, it's on mir.xyz. Um, if you look up Megan Loist Metaverse, it's like probably the first thing that pops up. Um, it's a great 26 page uh, primer basically on the metaverse. Um, and it really gives you a great idea of some of the, the market movements right now that are happening in the space, like what brands are hosting experiences on Roblox. What is Roblox? Like, what is Decentraland? And you kind of get to explore it through her perspective as well um, as somebody that's new to it. So yeah, I would, I would check that out. I would also like, you know, spend the time doing your, your diligence, like get on YouTube, learn. Like you, we've never had so much knowledge before at our fingertips and to sit around confused is, is almost a sin nowadays, right? Like the, the internet exists, go out and learn, learn more about Web3, it's really important. If anyone tells you that crypto or Web3 or blockchain or NFTs is a fad, like they don't know what they're talking about, to be honest. Uh, like, you know, the um, uh, there was a stadium, I'm trying to remember, oh, the Staples Center, right? Like that's now the crypto.com the crypto.com center, right? So I think that was also one of those really big moments where people started to realize like, oh my God, crypto blockchain web three is like a thing and we all need to start paying attention to it. And you're seeing a lot of investors that are starting to kind of have FOMO around web three in the metaverse and the crypto space. Um, so I hope more people that are our age get more interested in it. And I really hope people dive into it hard um, because I think it's going to be one of the most important trends in the future. And if you look at where the VC money is going, which I think is a great like way to kind of look at the future and kind of have uh, be able to peer into the future a little bit, look where the money from VCs are, is going, right? Like there's so much money going to Web3 companies right now. So learning about the space, really diving in, um, I think is really important, especially if you're a student. So you mentioned the stability and how there's not really many checks within Web3 in the metaverse right now. Um, and I feel like for investors, especially as it grows, like one of the things, especially venture capitalists look for is like, how can they mitigate risks when they're looking at investments? Um, do you think it's something that needs to happen? Do you think there needs to be, it needs to be more stable in order to attract bigger investors and to really grow the metaverse? Or do you think that's not necessarily something that needs to happen right away and people can still build technologies, create new ideas without having that stability and have the metaverse grow still? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, I think that the idea that VCs in any way are risk adverse and that frankly, like most VC investors even try to mitigate risk is probably a little bit misleading. Um, so when you look at how VCs actually invest and how their portfolios are structured, um, I was fortunate enough to have an internship last summer where I got to basically spend time. Um, we got to spend the whole summer uh, managing like 40 different VCs portfolios um, because I, I worked for the LP of 40 different portfolio funds. 
So that was really cool just to see like, how do they actually return money? Um, and it's interesting, right? Like when a VC's actual portfolio, they're only looking for like two or three winners out of 20 investments they make. So VCs are like 100% willing to be risk on all the time. Um, the way that you kind of mitigate risk um, as a VC is like making sure that companies have a co-founder, uh, making sure that companies, their cap table. So like the way equity is distributed, they haven't already sold 90% of the company before they've raised a seed round. Like the, the risk to a VC is more so the risk to the investment, less so the risk to consumers as much. Um, like the FOMO for the metaverse now is, is crazy. I haven't talked to any investors that are worried about regulation in the metaverse. Um, you're just really starting to see any regulation happen around social media. So you could argue that the government's like close to 20 years behind probably where they need to be in terms of like actually regulating digital services. And I, I don't, I, I honestly, I don't think any regulation is going to happen anytime soon uh, surrounding the metaverse, um, especially platforms like Roblox. Uh, there's no way that anything's going to get regulated in the near term because like the government's behind 20 years, right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens and like who really steps in to be the voice for regulation and who really kind of pushes that narrative. I think most time, most, it's probably going to be the media in a lot of ways. Um, and that's kind of what you've seen happen with, with Roblox a little bit um, in, in recent weeks. But I, I also think it's highly unlikely that any regulation is actually going to step up. And I don't think investors are even thinking about regulation or, or risk in the metaverse right now. Um, so people that aren't familiar with VC probably think that like, and for any of, of the people that I know that are in VC, you know, this is blasphemy a little bit, but like a lot of VCs right now, because it's so hard to get into competitive deals, um, one, they'll rely on the diligence of an earlier investor. And two, they'll just like dive in. Um, if, if like you already have A16Z, like Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia on your cap table as an investor, like VCs will literally just kind of fall in place um, down the line. So it's, it's interesting to see too, it's like how much care are VCs taking to actually invest in Web3 technologies that are safe for people? Um, that's kind of up in the air in some ways. So going back to Blocksmith um, and you starting that company, um, one of the things that I always like to ask, um, because I feel like there's a lot of people out there that will come up with a good idea and they'll have that idea, but they'll just never take any action or direct steps. So like, what were some of your first steps, like literal actions that you took to start the company um, and just to get it off the floor? Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. Um, I never like wanted to make a marketplace. So it's, it's actually like really interesting how I fell into making a marketplace and, and chose to. So in 2017, around 2017, like 2015 to 2017, like I mentioned, I started to buy and sell 3D models. Um, back in the day, I actually had like a 3,000 page Google Doc with pictures of 3D models and the prices of 3D models on there. So that was really my start, like the, the cold start to building what is now Blocksmith. Um, I actually would like buy and sell stuff using Google Docs and using Google Forms as a checkout system, which is like wild to think about, but it worked really, really well um, because nobody else like even had what even had Google Docs, right? Like people are literally taking pictures of 3D models and posting them on Discord channels and like typing in the price and then copying and pasting that over and over. 
And that's like how it is now. I like to say that it's, if you imagine that every seller on eBay was in a single group chat, that is how it is now. Um, so I was really like innovative at the time for making a Google Doc with like everything listed on there. I mean, it was really like the V1 storefront. Um, from there, I came to college. I met another um, uh, a developer named Gavin Tang. Um, fantastic developer, really helped me build out our beta. So we released a beta in September, 2020. And basically what that beta did is it took everything from those Google Docs, the 3,000 pages of like 3D models from those Google Docs, actually put them on a like fully automated platform. So at the time I was doing transactions completely manually. I would text somebody on Discord, they would look at my, my Google Doc and they would say, yeah, I want this 3D model. Okay, cool. Here's my PayPal, send the money via friends and family, and then I'll email you the, the product file. That's like how, this, how it was. Um, so I actually automated some of the processes. Uh, we built like the first uh, payment authentication technology that actually allows Robux to be used as a payment form on a third-party platform. And Robux is the native currency for Roblox. Um, we allow people on the beta to buy um, stuff from us. We were the sole seller on the beta. So it was just a storefront for us. I had never even thought of making a marketplace, but we released the beta and we actually scaled it up quite a bit. I won't say like exactly how much we earned, but like we scaled it up quite a bit for what it was. Um, got over a thousand plus users. And from there, I constantly started to get messages on Discord from other game developers saying, hey, can I sell in your store? And I'm like, why would you want to sell in my store? And then it clicked in my head, like, oh my God, I accidentally built like amazing marketplace technology, but I never built a marketplace. Like I built the ability to fully automate payments and send 3D models like via email, like fully like seamless, uh, like a fantastic listing process for listing these 3D models and displaying them. So I actually like accidentally built all this technology and really just built it to make my life easier. Uh, and then very quickly found out that like I built technology that can make millions of people's lives easier that are game developers. Um, so it fell, in this, it fell into this position where I started to look at other comparable services, um, like the Unity Asset Store, if you're familiar with, uh, with Unity as a gaming platform. Um, and decided like, yeah, of course I want to build a marketplace. Like, why would I not want to make other people's lives easier with the technology that we've worked really hard to build? Um, so that's where we are now. We started to build the concepts out, closed our beta in May, 2021, um, started to build in the concepts between May, 2021 and now. Um, and we're currently working on releasing a marketplace over the next two months, um, have investors lined up and all that fun stuff um, in a really great position to be building that and launching it soon. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of like where like how Blocksmith evolved from literally being Google Docs uh, to an actual like marketplace. So my advice for founders that are in a position where you might have a really good idea, but you really don't know how to start, um, just like do anything. I, th I think that's the most important thing. Like it's really easy to be insecure and sit on your idea and never like actually achieve anything. Like talk to people in your entrepreneurship department, actually like find a developer on campus if you're not a technical co-founder. Um, find a technical co-founder on campus and actually like start building what you have in your mind. Um, talk to customers, make sure that your idea is actually valid. That's a big thing too. A lot of people will have ideas of a company they want to start, but they'll be in a position where they actually don't have product market fit. So you're building something that nobody actually wants, which you think is really cool. So, you know, building some sort of a, an MVP, a minimum viable product or something really early on and putting that in front of customers allows for you to have opportunities where um, you can get customer feedback, you can build a customer board of directors, like an advisory team, 
and actually like find product market fit. And then kind of the rest of the stuff starts to fall in place. You'll do pitch competitions. People in your entrepreneurship department will be more interested in what you're working on. They'll connect you to possible investors and advisors. And from there, it'll scale up. But like best advice, start. I started using with Google Docs, like whatever you have to do to make it work, even if it looks incredibly crude and unprofessional, like just do it. And, and from there, like, you know, it'll take off. It'll be a rocket. So before, you know, you, you're, uh, I guess what Blocksmith really took off, were there any like big major struggles that you faced, like when you were first making it or like in the early stages of Blocksmith? Yeah. So like moderation was something that I did not really. So like, I'd say our biggest obstacle is that with our old company, we rebranded as Blocksmith and kind of that's the change that happened with the move to a, to a marketplace. With the old storefront and the old company, I never really like, it was kind of naive of me at the time, but I mean, at the time I was like, I don't know, 18, 19 when we released our beta. So like, I'll reserve the right to be naive at 18, 19. Uh, I was in this position where I didn't really understand how many bad actors there would be in terms of people that would supply us with beauty models. So like ended up not having really any great moderation tools or moderation services. So I ended up like building a very, very complicated, both like, like ethically and also like legally uh, built platform. Um, so if you're thinking about building something and you're a student founder, like if people are interested in what you're working on, like make sure to get professional advice too, right? Like talk to lawyers, talk to people about what you're building. And you'll only get really good advice that'll help you find the right business model that fits what you're working on. Um, but yeah, so like there's a lot of different obstacles that founders will face, like building the right team, finding the right co-founder. How do you make sure that, you know, your co-founder relationship is built properly? Did you use vesting schedules, right? Like all this really important stuff that you have to make sure you get right early on that isn't really public knowledge and is more experience-based. Um, there's a really good quote I forget who it's by, but um, it's it's by one of my favorite investors. He was the founder of Trigget, I believe, and exited. Um, it's uh, owning a startup and being a startup founder is like fighting Mike Tyson in a pitch black room, right? You don't know like what's going to happen and you really don't know like where the punches are going to come from. So it's, it's always a series of failures. It's always a series of learning. And I'd say the most important thing when it comes to like being a startup founder and especially being a student is like be open to failure and be open to learning. Um, that's, you're gonna fail like over and over and over. You're gonna create some awful looking logo or awful looking name for your company. And you're gonna have to change it all in six months. Like be open to that and don't get discouraged by it because a company is, uh, there, there's, really, there's another really good quote. It's like, you know, an overnight success took 10 years, right? Like I've been a robot CM developer for 10 years. So it's this interesting process where it's a constant series of failures but you have to keep going through it. You have to make sure that those obstacles don't become dead ends. So. Awesome. Um, I feel like all that comes down to trust, especially like building trust. You mentioned like you couldn't find a lot of developers um, to actually design that. Um, and it's just something that it can be really tough to work on because trust is just, it takes a while. And especially when you're starting a company, you want to hop into it right away and just get things moving. But building trust, especially if you have a co-founder, especially if you, if you have people that are really doing things for your company down the road, if you don't have trust, it can 
start to hurt you. So that's a very good point. Um, with your with Blocksmith in the future, where do you hope to take it? Um, and what do you kind of see as its potential? Yeah, so my end goal for Blocksmith is that we're not going to stop with Roblox. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to build the ultimate metaverse marketplace for Roblox. We're going to onboard thousands of developers. We already have over 180 developers that have signed up as sellers at launch that have committed over 2,000 3D models. What's really interesting now about Roblox is that Roblox is a walled garden. And a lot of people don't realize this. When it comes to development, everything you build on Roblox, you 100% own. So if there's over 100 million 3D models on the Roblox platform, it could actually be exported from Roblox and used on Unity, Unreal Engine, Mutate, Decentraland. And Roblox could actually become the center of all metaverses. And that seems kind of like obscure, but when you look at how many 3D models there are on Roblox that have never seen the light of day, on any other platform and have never been sold to developers on other platforms, the like sheer amount of create like tangible creativity that is available like in these Roblox 3D models, it's it's crazy. Like when you look at the Unity Asset Store, which is like normally looked at as the number one leading 3D model marketplace, that Unity Asset Store has 40,000 3D models. There's over 100 million 3D models on Roblox that have never ever seen the light of day when it comes to Unity game developers and some of these other platforms. So what we're trying to do with Blocksmith is we're going to build a large user base of sellers and buyers for the Roblox platform and then teach the sellers how to export and sell their 3D models for other market or for other platforms like Unity, Unreal Engine, uh, Mutate, Decentraland, some of these other major emerging metaverse platforms. And we actually fundamentally think that this is, is possible to and in doing so, uh, being able to actually create a cross metaverse marketplace, which is like a really new idea because a lot of people are still trying to figure out what the metaverse is. So like building a cross metaverse marketplace that actually allows for any marketplace or any metaverse game developer will actually be able to come to our marketplace, find 3D models that fit the platform they're trying to build for. Um, and we'll use Roblox game developers and their creativity and, and their submissions as the base to really build that launch pad to meet those other metaverses that's really cool you have that long-term kind of view especially on roblox is that it could become like the basis of the metaverse um, i was actually kind of thinking that like earlier when you're just mentioning how people will be able to interact on the internet it would just be more organic i was like thinking roblox could just be that kind of base towards everything so super cool that you say that and i could definitely see that in the future so we wish you lots of uh, luck as you pursue that big idea. Um, going on to the next topic, this is something that I literally hear about all the time at Purdue. Um, kids in my dorm are just like, we'll be running back and forth between their rooms, like showing each other different pictures and things. They're like, this is the picture I made and now I'm putting it up as an NFT. So I know you said you have um, some knowledge about NFTs. Um, what's your kind of experience with NFTs? Um, and how did you just get into it? Yeah, so really, um, this actually goes back to an earlier question where you asked around, like, why is Blocksmith a Web3 business? So, like, we were not a Web3 business. Like, and it's also important to when you look at, like, Web3, like, Web3 is a label that's applied to certain things that fit certain criteria. Because we're operating in the metaverse, 
And by the way, no one talked about the metaverse two or three years ago. Like that was not like if you use Google and you set that time parameter on Google and you search for the metaverse, like nothing's going to come up uh, because nobody was talking about the metaverse before Facebook became meta and before Roblox IPO. So like at that moment when Roblox IPO and Facebook became meta, it kind of changed the way that certain companies described themselves. And that's really kind of like how we fell into Web3. So before I really started to define Locksmith as a Web3 business, as a metaverse marketplace, I really wanted to learn more about like, what does Web3 actually mean? Who's in the space? Who's building in the space? Like what is a metaverse? Um, and that's really kind of what led me into learning more about crypto. Um, I know quite a bit about like blockchain and like cryptos and, and NFT projects. Um, with NFT specifically, that I would advise anyone that's looking to get into meta, uh, NFTs to really do your research on utility. Like NFTs are, are fundamentally fairly cool, um, but there's also a lot of like price speculation that happens as well. And if you're in the market to get rich quick, like you're probably in the wrong market, right? So like I'll talk to kids um, and students sometimes that want to talk about like NFT projects and they're like, oh my God, I'm trying to invest in NFTs. Like my bank account is $10,000 and I'm ready to go. I'm trying to find the next like crypto or NFT. Like what would you advise I spend all my money on? And I'm like, don't spend all your money on NFTs or crypto. Like take that money, find something you love and build a startup because you'll build way more equity faster. Um, but with NFTs, making sure that the NFT project has utility is huge. Um, so if you look at NFTs like CryptoPunk or Board Ape Yacht Club, like when you own an ape in the Board Ape Yacht Club, not only are you going to own that you know singular ape, you're also going to have like other options that are going to come up as well, right? Like the mutant ape serums, having access to like it's so interesting, right? Like with a Board Ape, it actually generates more value over time outside of the intrinsic value of that ape. Um, so you're going to have like, now you have a mutinate that you could sell. Now you have a serum that you can sell. So like when you're looking at an NFT project, making sure that there's an, there's some part of it that is going to evolve over time is really important. And then also making sure that it has utility in the sense that it an NFT should. So NFT should fundamentally act as digital access cards um, to the real world. That's like my fundamental belief of any NFT that has value has that. So if you're looking at a board at Yacht Club, when you own an ape, now you can go to different clubs, you can go to different parties, you can go to different events in the real world, right? But if you're buying an NFT and you're only speculating over price, like be prepared to lose all of that money because there's no utility. That's one of the questions that I always had because I was just, I just looked at NFTs as something that rich people were putting their money as an alternative investment, but I didn't see any like underlying value. So that's a good point that, Investing in NFTs in a way that actually gives you some value is something you should look forward to or you should try to do. Um, do you think it deserves all this hype? Do you think it actually be applicable in Web3 in the future and that it's a technology that people should actually put attention to? Yeah. So with NFTs, I actually do think there's a lot of value in the ones that have utility. Um, in terms of like how NFTs are going to kind of like participate in Web3, you're seeing a lot of metaverse platforms build like nft museums and allow people to kind of like share their nfts i would love to see more platforms trying to build tools that kind of generate virtual experiences around your nft so like say if you own an nft of a boat right like being able to take that nft of a boat 
link it to a, a metaverse platform and then actually be able to like ride around in that boat with your friends, right? Like that's real utility for what you're buying. Um, and you're seeing some projects that are starting to build that like uh, fractal.is, um, Justin Kahn is, is, I think he's a founder of it or, or a member in some way. Um, they like released, I think it was 100,000 NFTs recently. They minted like 100,000 NFTs called fractals. And they're these different like snowflakes, but they actually have some form of utility. So the snowflakes like are, can be used um, in various video games. So it's actually like there's value because you can use it in a virtual experience. I think that's really the future of NFTs. So like if you have a fractal, it'll have like different um, intrinsic elements to it, like uh, different health, different like abilities, stuff like that. So a big part of it too, when you're looking at, is this gonna be something that's gonna be around for a while? It's like our game developers, our people that are building the virtual experiences, building the metaverses, are they focused on creating actual experiences out of NFTs? And if they aren't, then NFTs are gonna fail. Like fundamentally, they're gonna fail. Um, and that really kind of only goes for certain NFTs as well. You have to you have to wonder like why people buy certain things too. Like with a board ape, um, are you buying it because like you mentioned, it's an alternative asset class, or are you buying it because uh, you want to go and be around celebrities at a yacht party and further another business that you own, right? So it's like, what value does that also have in terms of networking and community? Like that's one of the biggest drivers of NFTs too. Like the communities that you build around your NFT and the communities that are also gatekeeped by that NFT. So that's like a really interesting thing. Um, it, it'll depend a lot. Like community is gonna be everything for whether an NFT project fails or succeeds. And also the ability for an NFT developer to actually retain the community, that's something else, right? That's where you get into the utility aspect. So you can build a community around your NFT, you can release 100,000 fractals, but then if no game developer ever chooses to actually use fractals in their game, like that's where, you, that's where it fails, right? Um, there's also a big thing with like Next Earth. If you're familiar with that platform, um, you buy like sections of land on Next Earth and they're like screenshots basically of Google Earth. So one of the big things for that project, which has a ton of people and millions of dollars that went to it, you have a lot of people that are now like, okay, cool. I own an NFT of Madison Square Gardens. I own Madison Square Gardens in this virtual NFT world. Okay, cool. But I can't like host my own concerts at Madison Square Gardens yet. I can't have, you know, um, I don't know, Drake or another artist like Kanye West who, by the way, big Kanye West fan, spent like five hours this morning trying to get a pair of Yeezys. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting. Like when will Kanye West be able to have a concert at, you know, NFT Square Gardens and provide me a virtual venue based off my NFT, right? Like that's where Next Earth is going as a project. But if the, if the developers can't deliver on that, like the whole bottom falls out, right? So that's where a lot of NFT projects are right now. So we'll see, like this year is gonna be pretty important for um, developers actually stepping up and, and building on uh, what they're promising with those NFT projects. So when I think of something like that, I think the way in which it can work is if there's like one underlying base towards like the entire virtual world, which I could be wrong, but I don't think there is right now. It seems like there's so many different technologies. So how do you think in the future we can kind of work towards having that singular that kind of controls everything where people if they do own 
Madison Square Garden, they can have Kanye West pay and they would be actually making money out of it because they own that part of the virtual mm-hmm. world. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, like, how do you even view the metaverse in general? And like, what does that look like for the future? Is there going to be a single centralized metaverse platform where this stuff happens? Um, definitely not, right? Like, that's totally not going to happen um, in the same way that there isn't one social media platform that we all use, right? Like, we all have Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter. Um, what the opportunity surrounding centralization is more so when some of these other metaverses start to be more well established. Like, I think Decentraland has like 300,000 monthly users. Right? Like that's not even close to the 200 million that Roblox has. So it's this really interesting kind of scenario where some of these other emerging uh, metaverses still have to grow to the point where you could actually then begin looking at how do I connect all of them? And there's the way of like, you know, avatars and like social connection. That's something else like building a centralized hub for the that makes it easier to open different metaverses like through a digital medium um that's probably what that's going to look like but i don't think by any means that there's going to be like a single standard bottom uh like centralized metaverse um just because like monopoly and also like competition like competition is when you look at the metaverse like i hope if you've ever seen ready player one like i hope there isn't an oasis scenario where a platform like the oasis and and ready player one Kind of dominates everything because that also kind of lacks the it also can like cause issues with the creators and developers on those platforms um and, and other like labor exploitation problems so there's it's a really interesting future i think what's going to happen is that other metaverse platforms are going to continue to scale up there's going to be more experiences available on platforms also outside of roblox um and with blocksmith we're in a really great position where we can actually provide like 3d models to build all these virtual worlds right like that's the goal. Like if you're building a virtual world on Decentraland, we want to have the 3D models on our platform that you do it with. That's kind of the, the cross metaverse marketplace ideology. So from a development perspective, yes, there will be a centralized unified platform because it's very easy to do. Um, when it comes to like a centralized metaverse, I think it's highly unlikely. I think it's a way more likely there's going to be a central hub that allows you to connect more seamlessly and carry a, a more centralized persona. That's something else too. Like on Roblox, nobody goes by their real name. Everybody has virtual personalities, virtual identities that are completely different than, than the real one. Like by leagues different than the real one. Um, like if you have a, have a you know, 17, 18 year old that runs in a hundred thousand member community on Roblox, like that person is way different on Roblox than they are in the real world. So with Roblox, that's great, but if you're uh, if you're known under a certain name, under a certain identity on Roblox, you actually can't really take that to Decentraland very easily. So whoever builds the hub that connects all these metaverses and allows someone to seamlessly carry a personality and a certain image, uh, or certain, I guess, self-image brand of themselves um, to every single metaverse, like that platform is gonna be huge. That's gonna be the next Facebook. Um, and that's also gonna be, probably the biggest like centralized platform that we've seen today. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think competition is is key to especially building like a safe kind of controlled um, tech, new technology and something like a virtual world where if you just had 
kind of one underlying base. So it wouldn't really last. Whereas if you have different competition, it kind of pushes um, people to kind of think and make better choices versus just hopping in. Um, the last question I really wanted to ask surrounding just all this virtual world, all this new technology, and it's something that I think most people think about when they first hear about Web3 um, or just the metaverse in general. And that's, it's kind of scary that the entire world could be virtual. Do you think there's going to be a balance in the future where it's not going to be this overwhelming where everyone's just on a virtual world and people are still going to be like going outside, doing things that are in real life and having like real genuine interactions? Because I still don't think we're near the technology to the point where you can, there's nothing like meeting someone in person, shaking their hand, having that interaction. You just can't really replicate it no matter what you do. So do you think in the future we'll have that balance? Yeah, so just a, a really quick point on the last question with competition. Um, I also think it's really important just for like developer compensation, right? Like if there's one single platform, they can compensate people however they want, right? And like historically that's been abused especially with big corporations. So I hope that there's there's immense competition. I hope that Blocksmith can provide for all of them. That's my goal. Um, but yeah, so like, is the metaverse scary or is Hollywood scary? That's kind of an interesting thing. Like what does a virtual world look like? Don't we already live in a virtual world, right? Like we're meeting on Zoom right now. That's, we're interacting virtually. Um, we all have classes that, that in the past or even now are fully virtual, right? And it's, it's really interesting where a lot of the concerns surrounding um, how people interact in the metaverse is based on like the idea of Web2 technologies and how Web2 technologies are inorganic and kind of create an experience that's not fantastic, right? Like us talking on Zoom, like it's not super personable, right? Like, but if we were in person, it'd be different. Um, with Web3, it's, it's different though, right? Like if you're wearing haptic gloves and the other person is wearing haptic gloves, you can feel shaking their hand. Like it's a whole different world in some ways. And it's a lot more organic. Like me running into somebody on Roblox, I haven't talked to in a few years, completely organically in a virtual world, right? Like that is actual genuine organic social interaction um and a lot of people on roblox i mean they like roblox players one of the reasons they spend so much time on roblox um is because roblox in a lot of ways it's it feels like the real world um you can have organic friendships and organic relationships on roblox with people and it doesn't feel the same way that like talking to somebody over instagram does like it's a whole whole different experience um, so I think like a lot of the, like, why is the metaverse scary kind of thing? Like there's 200 million monthly people on Roblox right now and like people still go outside, right? So I, I think that it's, it's kind of the same argument of like AI is going to take over the world and there's going to be a Terminator thing. Like that's how I view, honestly, a lot of the fears surrounding the metaverse. Um, and also it's, it's, it's cool because there's actually a lot of positive stuff that's going to happen with the metaverse. The more time we spend virtually online and virtual worlds, the less dependence we have on certain uh, consumables in the real world, right? Like, do you need a, a pair of Yeezys, a Supreme sweatshirt in the real world uh, when all of your like virtual closet is what people care about, right? And if you're spending a lot of your time in the metaverse, like it doesn't matter. If your work is completely online, 
now you don't need 10, 15 suits, right, to go to work with. So it's actually like the metaverse fundamentally is very green, which is something that a lot of people actually like completely don't understand or think about. Like if you look at sustainability in the metaverse, the shift to a focus on digital goods and digital closets will completely change the needs that we have in the real world um, and our expectations of things in the real world too, which actually creates a lot of opportunity to better developing countries, um, offer more meaningful jobs and positions. Um, it's just a continuation of some of the stuff that people have seen happening with the move to like remote work uh, and like hybrid working environments. So I think there's a lot of really, really positive stuff that the metaverse is going to uh, actually change. Uh, but a lot of people are more focused on the negative. If you're worried about the metaverse and you think it's scary, go play Roblox for, for an hour. I'm sure you won't be that scared and you'll still want to go outside. So it's kind of that that mindset of, you know, but it's also there's so many unique experiences you can have too in the metaverse that you can't have in the real world. If all three of us wanted to go climb Mount Everest right now on Roblox, we can't, right? But you can't do that. We can't do that right now, right? Like we're not going to fly to Tibet. So it's it's interesting too. It's like, how do some of these um, relationships, how do they evolve also in the metaverse? Um, and I think people will have like more meaningful and, and deep relationships in the metaverse than they do with like current social media, right? I mean, look at how Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat affects young people, like depression is through the roofs. But when you look at kids interacting in the metaverse, like people are building relationships with hundreds of people in the metaverse, like very deep relationships too. Like I have friends that I met on Roblox, like that I've talked to for six, seven years. So the future of like social interaction, I actually think is, it remedies a lot of the problems that have existed in web two social interaction. And I, I'm, I'm very bullish on, on the future of social interaction and organic social interaction in the metaverse, for sure. Yeah, I love that you mentioned all those positive things surrounding technology, because I, I think people will just approach new big changing technologies like um, web three, it's like scary. But I think if you have an open mind and look for those positives, um, you start to see opportunities. You can actually see how it can positively affect the world versus just having everything be negative. Um, before we ask you the question that we ask everyone on our podcast, um, I just have a quick hitter for you. Do you have any like book recommendations, whether it's Web3, blockchain, self-improvement, literally anything, even if it's Harry Potter, that that's fine. But just want to hear, do you have any good recommendations to read and just, yeah. Sure, yeah. So... I guess there's a few. So like, I'm going to, I'm going to say a few books, but I don't recommend that you buy them. I recommend that you find the PDF online. And I think in general, I, I think there's a culture around entrepreneurship that people are constantly telling other founders to like read things like, Hey, maybe like don't read the newest book from Mark Andreessen that cost $30 for a hard copy online. Like, maybe spend the hours you're going to spend doing that, like watching some YouTube videos from like Y Combinator that, you know, teach you better product market fit. Like, I think that we, we've kind of created a culture over the past 10 years of like, you need to do X, Y, Z to be a good founder. You need to read, you know, a book a week. I think we need to move past that in some ways. Um, and I think that like where the money goes for those books too is really interesting, right? Like, I'll, I'll, t I'll save my book recommend recommendations now, like Peter Thiel, Zero to One, uh, Mark Andreessen, like The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Those are kind of prerequisites in the entrepreneurship community and like everybody knows those. Um, but really like spend time building things, right? Like I promise you that reading like Mark Andreessen's book is not gonna change your life, but like building the first iteration of your startup will. So 
as as that advice is useful, you know, I probably have a different opinion than people that say 50 books and, you know, tell young people to read them and spend, you know, hundreds of dollars on books. But like, for real, build something cool, focus on building it. You don't need to read every entrepreneurial book that exists. You don't need to be like Ty Lopez and, you know, knowledge and, and, and read a book a week. Like, just dive in on something that you really care about. And if there are books around that space, like explore them, save as much money as you can, be a lean founder, right? Lean startup, be a lean founder. Um, and, and just try to learn about stuff you're passionate about. Don't force yourself to read books on topics you're not interested in. Don't force yourself to like check boxes that other people are telling you to check. Like just do what you love at the end of the day. And that's kind of what my ideology with Blocksmith and my ideology as an entrepreneur and what I try to tell students. Yeah, Zero to One was a great book. I really enjoyed that one. He gets a lot of, he, he looks at things differently than like most people would. So definitely recommend that one too. But I think that's a good point because a lot of people, I think for any entrepreneur, even there's that breakthrough moment where you realize you can't know everything and you just got to hop into it. And the only way for you to learn is by doing. Um, so definitely like not reading every single book, like after you have a solid base and you have a general understanding of what you want to go into, you just got to hop into it and just, just have that confidence that you can learn as you go. Yep. So uh, one final question before we wrap things up here uh, that we like to ask all of our, all, everybody on the podcast, what is your why? Like, why do you do what you do? Yeah. So I think a lot of like, I'll view it through the lens of Blocksmith. Um, so like, why am I fundamentally doing Blocksmith, right? Like, yes, it is a great business model and yes, it makes money. That is cool. That is fun. But that's not like fundamentally my goal. My goal is to, um, when I was younger, I would go to the library all the time, right? Like my, I was very fortunate. My parents like really had a, a high focus on my education. And like, I was constantly at our local library. Um, and I, I live in a fairly small town. Um, not a lot of people. Local library is like one of those like typical American underfunded local libraries. And every time I would go in there, there was always kids that like couldn't afford a computer. And they would always be on the library computers playing Roblox. And I just thought that like, in my mind, I'm like, can I create an opportunity for people that are so passionate about what they're building that I can create an opportunity for them to monetize what they're doing in, in a new and exciting way. And that's like fundamentally my why. I wanna be able to build opportunities for people to continue doing what they're doing and not have to go find jobs that they don't like. If you can build a career selling 3D models on, from your creations on Roblox, like what an awesome mission. Right. So that's like my personal why I want to be the person that provides those kids in the library with, you know, the ability to sell their creations and buy their first computer. Right. Like that's my fundamental why. That's super cool. And I think that's one of the big breakthroughs with Web3 and all this new technology is that before kids that want to start their own company or just if you want to do anything, you have physical limitations, you have money limitations. But I think with a virtual world, I think it will open up a lot more opportunities for people to, to do the things they want to do. And I just think that's a very positive thing for our future. Um, yeah, totally. Like, and also like just creativity in general. Like if I can offer an opportunity for people to like have an outlet for creativity, like all the, all the wins, right? So. so that's all we have for you today. Um, we loved hearing about all your experiences within Web3 as an entrepreneur. Your opinion, your opinion surrounding the future and the opportunities that lay within it. Um, we wish you the best of luck with all your endeavors. 
Um, and thank you for so much, so much for joining us on today's episode. Thanks guys. It was a lot of fun. All right. So for our listeners, please check us out on Instagram at expedition.success. If you'd like to talk about today's episode, have any questions or recommendations, please reach out to us through our Instagram or through our email at expedition.success.podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.